0: If you brought a copy of Scripture with you uh, this morning, you can find Exodus chapter 20. If you're watching online the same, thanks for joining us. And welcome back. It's been a long summer. COVID's still going on, but we're making our way back. The church is getting fuller and fuller every week, and you're making your way back from your vacations as well, I see, seeing some of these posts on social media. In fact, I noticed a few of you have been out either in the the great, uh, you know, west or uh, down in the Smoky Mountains, uh, hiking and camping. And, and in fact, I was talking to our administrative pastor here just the other day. He took his oldest son out for a little father-son getaway. They did some hiking, they did some camping, and he was telling me about all of their excursions. And uh, I got to thinking that uh, this reminded me a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of a story I heard about Sherlock Holmes and, and Watson. Uh, they were camping uh, one time, and uh, uh, after a, a great meal and some great conversation, they, they, they went to bed. And about halfway through the night, Holmes nudged Watson, and he said, Watson, open your eyes. What do you observe? To which Watson, knowing this had to be a test coming from Sherlock, you know, he says, uh, uh, well, uh, astronomically, I, 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 I observe that there must be billions of stars and millions of galaxies there. And theologically, I observe that God must be omnipotent to be able to create all of that. And horologically, I, I deduce that it must be about 3 a.m. And meteorologically, I, I, I perceive that it'll be a beautiful day. Well, how about you, Sherlock? Holmes thought for a minute, and he said, Watson, you meathead, someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) Some things are so obvious, they're right in front of you, but we complicate them. We tend to complicate the things, especially the things of God that are not meant to be complicated, like the commandments, the Ten Commandments that we're studying. They're not complicated. They're pretty clear. But we do tend to complicate them. Here's one that's very straightforward, the seventh command, the one we've come up on this morning, and here it is, you shall not commit adultery. That sounds pretty straightforward, makes pretty good sense. I think most of us understand what it means. Now, I want to start this morning by putting some hope into you. How about this for a hopeful passage of Scripture? Look at, the, look, at, look at the screen. Know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, or idolaters, or adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, will, or nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, as Paul said to the Corinthians. Now, isn't that a hopeful text? It would be if you got the next line, and here it is. He says, and such were some of you. Which means that the Corinthian church was guilty, many of them at least, of all of those sins just listed in that list. But notice what he said, he goes on to say, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, amen? I want to start out this way in a hopeful way. Because no matter who you are, where you have been, or what you have done, God knows, and more than that, God can change your account. He can expunge you of your sins. He can make you cling to the virtues of his son, Jesus Christ, and give you hope. We're talking about adultery. Not an easy topic. Adultery is any form of sex outside of marriage. Included within this command is virtually every form of sexual deviance known to man, including fornication, homosexuality, pornography. And then Jesus added to the list in order to lift this thing up or or lower it, depending on how you look at it, what lens you're looking through, lust. Lust is adultery in the heart. Now, the problem is not sex. God invented sex. Can I get an amen? The problem isn't sex. It's the forbidden kinds of sex that destroy lives, mess with people's minds, threaten marriages, and virtually destroy the fabric of civilizations, has and is in this present hour doing it to our very own country. And while God clearly designed sex to be enjoyed within marriage, along with the be fruitful and multiply, a lot of us haven't got that part down yet, but the early church fathers, truth to tell, they didn't, they didn't give us much help on this deal. The early church fathers were kind of prudish about sex, even sex within marriage. Uh, Tertullian, a well known church father, who has more famously said that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. In other words, the more you mow us down, the more we grow. Talking about persecution and how Christians can be persecuted and still we multiply, but I think it's ironic that he said the blood of the saints is the seed because he also said that he'd rather see the human race become extinct than to procreate. What in the world? Ambrose, another famous early church patriarch or father, he was a 4th century apologist, 4th century theologian who battled Arianism. If you don't know anything about Arianism... Arianism was very rife, very popular in the world of that day. It basically taught that Jesus wasn't God, that Jesus was a created being. It was really the, it was really the seed for uh, Jehovah's Witnesses today, Arianism. And Ambrose fought against that and fought and, and was a champion. He championed the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. We love Ambrose. Except Ambrose said that married couples should always be ashamed when they have sex. What in the world? Even Augustine, say it ain't so Augustine. I mean, everybody like, I mean, every form of, every sect of Christianity claims Augustine. Augustine, Augustine said that intercourse was necessary, but sexual passion was a sin. Well, then along comes the development of the Roman Catholic Church and their famous vow of celibacy that they, uh, put upon their priest, which, by the way, has unleashed a torrent of pedophile and homosexual perversions, restricted, by the way, all Roman Catholics from sex on holy days, and by the time of Martin Luther and the Reformation, there are 183 of them. Do your math. That's half the year. And so with that, I say, praise God for the Reformation. Amen? <laughs> I mean, it put the Bible back into play. Martin Luther and company gave us the light of truth on intimacy within marriage and the enjoyment of sex within marriage. Even so, I have to tell you, I mean, when I first became a pastor 30-some years ago, a guy that I otherwise had enormous admiration for, he, he sidled up alongside me after I preached on this subject, and he said to me, he said, Pastor, I want you to know that Adam and Eve never had sex before the fall. And so all marriage, marital sex is sinful. I'm looking at him. He never did explain to me why he had two kids, but that's another story altogether. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Now, <clears throat> as we've been working through the 10 Commandments, we told you that every command has a New Testament counterpart to it, right? And the same is true here. And I love this counterpart in Hebrews 13 because here the Apostle Paul takes marital fidelity, the joy and, uh, of the marriage bed, and he contrasts this with perversion when he says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. There you go. And the only one time one defiles the marriage bed is when he's outside or she's outside the marriage bed. That's called adultery. And you shall not commit adultery, Right? Now if you want to know the pathology, and I purposely use the word pathology, the study of the path, that's what ology means, the study of, so the study of the path, the pathology of immorality, then go no further than Proverbs 7. Don't go there now, but mark it down, study it for yourself, that's where that young man falls into sin. But if you want to look at the narrative, the story, the most famous story in all the Bible of infidelity or adultery, then look no further than David and Bathsheba. So if you would, make your way over to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And all I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first five verses, then we'll summarize a bunch of it because this is a story I'm guessing many of you are familiar with, perhaps some of you, not so much. David is the king. He's on top of the world. He has fought the battles, beaten Goliath, ascended to the throne. He's wiped out all of his enemies. But he's in a time of laxation, and this is a troubling time when everything is cool and you're at peace. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Kings went to war with their it says it. They go to, they, it says early, go, they go to war with their, their, uh, their armies, but not David. There's your first warning sign. Watch him just blow through every red light you could possibly blow through here, okay? It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. They saw from a roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived and sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Did you see all those red lights he just blew right through? He saw her. He stared at her. He inquired about her. She's married, and she's not just married. She's married to Uriah the Hittite. By the way, Uriah was one of the 37 mighty men of David, one of the most famous of all warriors in Israel. But he ran every red light on his path. This is one of the most treacherous stories found in all of the Bible. You saw it from just those first five verses. He brings her in. They have sex. She gets pregnant. And suddenly, everything has to change. David has to do an audible. And he starts to lie and manipulate. He brings Uriah back from the war front. He gets him drunk. The rest of the text tells him, he gets him drunk, tells him to go be with his wife. After all, he's been gone. It seems very natural. Go enjoy your wife. He's so noble. This is another red light David blows through. He's so noble, he loves his soldiers. He can't can't imagine enjoying himself at a time of war. He stays on David's doorstep. David tries it again, again, to no avail. And so now David is really in a maze. So He gives word to his general, Joab, he can't live anymore. See to it that he dies in battle, and he does. So now he's got blood on his hands. He's not only committed adultery, but now he's murdered someone. And then to top it off, he goes and takes Bathsheba and makes her his wife. For nearly a year after this event, for nearly a year, David, This passionate man of God became cold hearted, hard, and was in a miserable state physiologically. He describes it in Psalm 32. I'll just, there he talks about God's hand pressing upon his body. He describes himself as a pot shirt, all dried up, which is what happens when you live in sin and you refuse to repent, turn away from it. You just become miserable in every way. Anybody relate here online? For just a few moments, and this is not exhaustive, but I want to talk to you about godly men and godly women on sex. First of all, godly men love their wives the way Jesus loved them. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's what the Bible tells us. Husbands, love your wives as what? Christ loved the church, gave himself for it, right? By the way... At the time of Bathsheba and this adulterous situation, David had, count him, six wives already. He already had six. They're nowhere to be found in the story, but he's already got six wives. And before your mind goes to the, the, the ethical and moral issues involved with having multiple wives in the day in which this was, just, just grab this for a moment. The fact that David had six wives at the time is proof positive that more. Quote, unquote, never satisfies. Rather, it frustrates, complicates, and incarcerates. Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon writes, and here's the words to you young men and older ones, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. And then he actually tells you how to do that, you can read that for yourself. He says, he says, uh, for the the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he, God, ponders all of his, anybody know the next word? Paths. And then he says, that undisciplined man will be caught in the cords of his own sin, tied up, incarcerated, imprisoned, in a maze, in his own sin." So godly men, love your wives the way Jesus loved you. Godly women submit to their husbands as they do to Jesus. Again, Ephesians 5 tells us that. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Now, the previous, the context says submit to one another. So submitting to one another is one of the key elements to genuine intimacy within a marriage. I'm telling you that because it's true. And ladies who are in a difficult situation, when you see that and you, you, know, you sort of recoil, wives submit to you, I get that. I understand. Husbands love that verse, and you shouldn't. You should be thinking about loving your wives. That's the higher calling. But remember, ladies, it says, as unto the Lord. And he is your ultimate submission, is he not? He's your ultimate. He is ultimately who you submit to. Godly men fight to avoid the second look. Now, a word to all of us guys. If you read and study the Bible, you find out the warnings are always to our eyes. The warnings are to the men's eyes. Can I get an amen? You didn't even have to know that to be true. I never have a problem looking at women. I have a problem looking at them twice. It's the second look that brings you into the maze. Speaking of which, I was in a maze, a literal maze at a camp a few weeks ago. This camp that I was in purchased, I don't know, it's like a city block worth of pallets. And they built it up like 20 feet high and they created a maze. It's an, it's an amazing, no pun intended, thing. And um, my granddaughter wanted me to wanted me to go in there and do the water gun fight. I thought, I'll go in there and get squirted a couple times. Let me tell you something. When they realize a pastor in there, you're not going to get squirted a little bit. I was, I, was, I was a wet rat within about two minutes. The entire place came upon me. And I'm running all over this maze like a rat, literally. And I get lost. I cannot find my way out. And I'm not scared because it's like broad daylight, okay? But it's like, I'd like to get out of here. I cannot get out. I was totally stuck and still getting squirted. Now David was in a maze. He was stuck. The more he looked, the more he wanted. He went from a glance to a gaze to a haze and into a maze. A maze that he could not extract himself from. And that's where some of you are right now as we speak. Some of you in this room are in a maze, and you're having a hard time figuring out how how to extract yourself from it. Some of you watching online right now, you're in a maze, and you don't know how to extract yourself from it. Let me go back to my illustration. I'm in this maze trying to figure my way out. Thankfully, it isn't dark, so I'm not scared. Not really, anyway. But in the middle of the maze is a bridge. They built a bridge in the middle of this thing. And it's easy to see the bridge. From anywhere in the maze, you could see the bridge. And you could kind of make your way over to the bridge. Now, the bridge wasn't the way out. But it showed you how to get out. If you got up on the bridge, you could see the configuration to get out. And that's what I did. That's how I found my way out. I want to give hope to those of you in this room and watching online that are in a maze right now. You're stuck. You can't extract yourself. You want out, but you can't get out. You're guilt ridden. You're disgusted with yourself. Look to the bridge. The bridge is there, it's visible. In your, in your heart's eye. The bridge is Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, I am the bridge and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father and gets out of the maze except through me, amen? He is, by, he's, a, he's better than a bridge. He doesn't just show you how to get out, he takes you out. He'll escort you out of whatever maze you happen to be in. And here's how the Apostle Paul said it to those who are true followers of Jesus already. He said, there's no temptation that has overcome you, but such as is common to man. Everybody goes through temptation. Can I get an amen? But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but will with the temptations, so we all get the temptations, provide the way of escape, the way of escape so that you can bear up under it. That's a beautiful promise from God as he takes us to that bridge. So godly men, fight to avoid the second look. That second look will take you from the glance to the gaze and into the maze, and that's a trap you can't get out of. Godly women fight to avoid a seductive look. Do I get any amens from the ladies? No, don't even go there. Look, if the guy's problem is the eyes in Scripture, the woman is the dress. The warnings always go to the way they dress. Did you know that? It's true. And there's a lot of speculation over Bathsheba, was she seductive? Truthfully, we just don't really know. You know, I I know that I've gone on record years ago saying to you ladies, look, if the barn needs painting, (laughs) paint that thing. (laughs) But it doesn't have to look like the Taj Mahal for crying out loud. Use some common sense in the process. God made you to be beautiful, and that's okay. But God help you if you let your beauty that only your husband should see be seen by other men. So godly women win the battle, or fight, rather, to avoid the seductive look. Godly men win the battle of the mind. This is really huge here because this is where the real battle takes place between the ears. I had a friend that I led to Christ years ago, told this story, it was very riveting to me, He hadn't been a Christian for very long. And he was a salesman, he had a beautiful wife, but he was a salesman, and he was in a situation where a woman was clearly coming on to him. And he said, he said Patty, I, I, I looked at her, and then I looked at her again, I, did, I took that second look. And in that moment, he said, I realized, in that moment, I realized, I was just a couple of steps from being a rapist. I wasn't going to go there but he did and I got to thinking holy smokes he just taught me something I mean guys guys collectively will you not admit that there are some crazy things that go through your head from time to time things that go through your mind you go I can't believe I even thought that that's where you have to win the battle When it's in your head, listen, you will never run from something you're not afraid of. Write that down somewhere. You will never run from something you're not afraid of. And you should fear adultery in every one of its forms. And that's why Paul told Timothy, flee youthful lust. Back to the women. Godly women win the battle in their modesty. I know what you're thinking. Did you kind of say this already? Kind of, but I'm going to put a verse behind it now, okay? Here it is. Here it is. Here's Paul's words. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, <laughs> adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, why did I put that up there for you? Keep it up there for a moment. Why did I? Here's, I, I have one reason and one reason only I put that up there for you. I didn't write this. I didn't write this. And you have to win the battle over modesty. Nobody nobody is asking you to just, you know, throw a tarp over you or whatever it is, okay? But you do need to win this battle of modesty in this day where there's it's almost absent from our culture. Back to the men. Guard your eyes. Job made a covenant with himself. He, he basically says, Job says in Job 30, he says, I made a promise, a covenant with my own eyes, not to stare at the virgin, not to gaze. That's that second look. That's the trap that leads to the maze. I have seen pornography. I have personally seen pornography literally destroy men's lives like it's doing right now in some of your lives. I know it because the stats are there. At least half of you are dabbling in it right now as we speak, and probably more. I have watched pornography destroy lives and annihilate marriages, and more than a couple. It's destroying some of you right now. You've got to win this fight. And guard your eyes. And finally, godly women guard their hearts. You might say, well, don't we all have to? Yes, but right now it fits the women. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. What does he mean when he says guard your hearts? It's, it's the way your emotions take over. Um, the heart is deceitful above all things, and... Desperately wicked, the Bible says in another place. So I read this study, and I was going to share it with you, but we, for the sake of time, I can't. But I'll just tell you, it was, it was a humorous study. The problem is, this isn't very funny. But basically, it was a study on why beautiful women often marry homely guys, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a funny study to read. But it, it's also a truthful. It's, they've got the facts. I got news for you guys. The women aren't drawn to your bravado. It's not the 16-inch biceps that pull them them into you or you to them. It's a whole lot different for a woman than it is a man. Can I get a woman's amen? amen? So guard your hearts, ladies, because you might be taken in by somebody you never saw coming. All of us have to guard our hearts. And if you're single here, If you're a single individual, listen to it. Solomon said, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, not to stir up, don't awaken love, right? Before it pleases or until it pleases. Guard your hearts. God is greater than your passion. He's greater than your battle. He's greater than your struggle. And he will take care of you. Find your satisfaction in him. The thing about it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 and verses 32-34 through 34, that a man who's married can't completely dedicate himself only and solely to God. He has to be both dedicated to God and to his wife. Have you ever read that? But if you're single, you have the opportunity and the glory to be utterly and radically dedicated to God. And that's where you need to be. In short, godly men and godly women when on the path before they ever reach the place, knowing that, and many of you have already memorized it, so say it with me, paths lead to places. Say it again. Paths lead to places. Listen, I didn't just coin that phrase many years ago because it had a little catchiness to it. This is a profound truth. That truth you're looking at has saved my hiney more than once, a bunch of times. It saved many of yours as well. And some of you need to learn the truth in that phrase. It's a powerful truth that needs to be heeded. The path can be as saving, it can be as saving a place as it is a damning place for some of you. All of us, really. Because There, as you hold the cursor over that sight, as you go from glance to gaze, as you go from thought to contemplation, you're on the path. It's a bad one, and you know it. But it's only the path, it's not the place, not yet, anyway, and that's where you have to win this battle. It's an awful place. I get it. It's where the temptation is growing. I know it. But that's where you have to win the battle. Because God is greater than your battle. Amen? And that's going to include a lot of non-negotiables. You don't just say, I'll take that and I'll take number one and number three. Listen, you've got to have these non-negotiables in your life as a man or a woman, as a boy or a girl, if you're going to resist sexual temptation and adultery. And the first is the word. You have to have the word in you. It's not enough that you just dabble in it. You need to soak in the word of God every single day. Here's what Jesus said. He, he prayed for us when he said, sanctify them. That means to set apart, means to cleanse. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. He said to his disciples in John 15, you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Have you ever read that? And in that Ephesians 5 passage I referred to earlier, he says to husbands, Husbands, sanctify your wives through the washing of water through the word. So now it's a discipleship thing between couples. This is a non-negotiable. It's not enough for you to just, you know, just listen to the Bible once in a while or pop it in on the run. You need, to, you need to give yourself time to soak in the word every day. That'll be your battle armament. You need the church of Jesus Christ. You need the church. I know this is a COVID time. I know we, this, this is a weird time. We're all weirded out over this. We want it to go away. But we need one another, do we not? You need friendships, not just friendships, you need godly friendships. Men in your lives, women in your lives who will speak truth to you, who will be strongly confront you if necessary, love you, forgive you. And you need a big view of God. This is a non-negotiable. you got to see God for who he is. And when Jesus says, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age, do you really believe that? I'm asking you a question. Do you really believe that? God is everywhere. He is om- he's omnipresent. He's with you. You've got to have that picture of God. He's omniscient. He knows you, and he's omnipotent. He will help you. Get a big picture of God in your life. That's a non-negotiable. You need to pray and spend time in prayer over these, strong, these temptations that you are enduring, and fast, especially if you're an individual struggling with sexual temptation. You need to fast. When you deny yourself and you, and you couple that with prayer, it is a powerful battle armament in your life. And then finally, you need to confess. That's a, the other negotia, uh, non-negotiable is you need to confess. You need to repent. You need to acknowledge your sins. Listen, no other sin in the Ten Commandments or else in the Bible is used more metaphorically as well as physically, but metaphorically as well as that of adultery. If you know your Bibles, you know that's true, right? Israel, God's chosen, constantly clamoring after other nations, and God would call them adulterous because they go after the idols of the other nations. James, on the flip side of the Bible in the New Testament, Calls us adulterers because we have embraced the culture and swallowed it up and live in accordance with it. That's what happened to David. Now listen, as we bring this to a close, David lost his battle. When the smoke cleared, he not only broke the seventh commandment, he broke every single commandment on the second half of that decalogue. And you might argue about the first two on the first half. Over the next year, guilt and misery and social and spiritual distancing took place between him and God. You read the narrative, he doesn't reference God. He's far from God. But here's what I want you to hear, all of you that are struggling right now. This might be the only thing some of you need to take away today. I mean it. David was still God's. Just stare at that for a moment. In spite of all of his treachery, he was still God's. And God would send his man, Nathan, into his life. Some of you remember the story. He Appeals to David's emotions. David's far from God. His body's racked with pain. He's not walking with God, but here comes the prophet. Tells him a story. Tells him about a guy who owns a bunch of sheep. Could have taken one from his own herd for his banquet, but rather he took one that was basically a pet to another family. Kills the sheep. David comes unglued. That man deserves to die. Actually, the law said he didn't deserve to die, but that's what happens when you're living in sin. Everything is worse. He deserves to die. And Nathan says to David, you're the man. You're that guy. It was one of the most brilliant ways to confront somebody ever that ever took place. And with that, David was broken. And the narrative says that David said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's not a Lengthy statement. Psalm 51 unpacks that actual confession. And Nathan says, you've been forgiven. The consequences were still there. But God's confrontation had led to David's confession. Some of you here this morning and watching online, you're in that maze right now. You're guilt-ridden and grief-stricken over your own life. But if you have really come to a place where you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're still God's. Isn't that a nice thing to know? The problem is some of you are fooling yourself. You've not trusted Jesus. You, You know him. You invoke his name, but it's not real to you. Has God sent a Nathan along your way? Praise God for the Nathans, amen, who come in in boldness and say, you're the man, you're the woman. Just the other day, we had a a guy in our church who was living in sin. We lovingly and took our time to walk him through the church discipline process. We we appealed to him. He rejected every avenue along the way and walked away, and he was removed by discipline. He ran into a woman in our church who loves Jesus, and he didn't know her. She knew him, and she said, are you so-and-so? He said, yeah, who are you? I'm so-and-so. Well, how do I know you? How should I know? Well, I'm a member at Sailorville Church, and his eyes bugged out. And then she began to preach to him, said, you need to turn back to God, turn back to your family. Get out of this maze. He wept. He didn't repent, but God used her as a Nathan. The other day in one of our staff meetings, one of our other pastors did a tremendous job actually teaching from this text on blind spots in our lives. He made the comment that when I think of David's legacy, this, is, this, this story comes to mind. Now, how could it not come to your mind? But I want you to know something. A thousand years after this incident, a thousand years, mind you, the Apostle Paul is preaching, and he gives God's legacy of David. When he says, of David, I found David not a man That was a murderer, not a man that was an adulterer. But we've come to love this expression, haven't we? Many of us. But a man after my own heart, who will do everything I ask him to do. That was David. David's legacy was secured, saved even, through his repentance. And so when you read Psalm 51 on your own, you'll see David is he's as humble. It it tells us it's, it's at that moment when he confessed his sin of adultery, and it's very humble. It's incredibly humble. But he never mentions the name Bathsheba. He never mentions murder. Sort of alluded to, but not really. And the reason it's not is because of this. His guilt was already expunged. His guilt was gone. The confession lived on. Doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, who you are, God can change your heart through his son, Jesus. And the answer, if you're in a maze right now, is to look for the bridge. It's there. He's there. Jesus is the bridge. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Amen? And nobody gets to the Father except through him. And he's better than a bridge. He doesn't just show you the way out. He is the way out, and he'll take you out. And he'll clean you up. And he'll take away your guilt and your grief. And he will restore the thing that's missing in your life as we speak, and that is joy. Nobody living in sin, no matter what sin it is, has joy. And that's what we want, right? I want to be a joy pursuer. If I'm going to be a joy pursuer, I got to be a God pursuer. And some of you are here and you've never trusted Jesus. You've, You've given lip service to him. You've grown up around him, but you don't know him personally. The same advice goes to you look to the bridge. The bridge is called the cross, where he died and rose again for you. Trust him as your Savior, he'll cleanse you of your sins, make you his. That's a good place to be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time in your word. Thank you for this tough story of David and Bathsheba and this hard command not to commit adultery. Most of us here are guilty at one time or another in our lives of some form of adultery. And some of us are trapped in its maze right now. God Have mercy on those individuals. Have mercy on that young man. Have mercy on that young woman. Bring her to the bridge. Bring her to your son Jesus. Bring them to the cross where they can find redemption and salvation and forgiveness and joy. And I pray, Lord, for those who are here who really do have a relationship with you but they're in a maze themselves. Let them be reminded in their own hearts right now, Lord, that you're still, they're still yours. And you're still theirs. Give them hope today, we pray, Lord. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's all stand.